Welcome back to Enlighten Up for episode 63, The Magic Sky DJ, an agnostic, and gifts versus transactions with Chuck Onslow. We welcome Chuck to the show today. He is the author of the book, An Agnostic's Guide to Spiritual Growth and Shit. It's a really funny book, easy to read, uh, but great advice on the meaning of life while adding in you know, some dude talk and some humor and sex and some curse words. But we're also going to talk about who is Corey? Is he the Magic Sky DJ? And what exactly is the Magic Sky DJ? And how does an agnostic become spiritual? And we're going to talk about parenting uh, and how that inspires self-evolution. We're going to talk about the correct way to meditate. Is it even possible? Is it even a thing? And later on in the show, we're going to talk about gifts versus transactions. What does it actually mean? And how can many relationships benefit from understanding this very key idea? So without further ado, let's jump into the episode and find out what Chuck has to share with us. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Enlighten Up. I am Nicole Frolic, and I'm here with my two beautiful co-hosts, Lisa and Brian. And today we have an author joining us for the show. In fact, he is he's an author of a book for agnostics. It's an agnostics guide to spiritual growth and shit is the actual title of his book. And He's got on the front cover someone meditating with all the chakras and then a pile of shit at the bottom. So it's actually a very humorous book and we've all read it and we're excited to have Chuck Onslow on to join the show. I'm just going to give you guys a little bit of a description of the book so you can have an idea of what you're going to expect for this show. And uh, the book uh, description is, if you've ever wanted to know what spirituality is all about, but didn't want to risk boredom, the agnostic's guide to spiritual growth and shit is for you. The authentic, comprehensive, and accessible guide explains the meaning of life, dismantles the hangups that blockade us from true fulfillment, unlocks the mysteries of healthy relationships, and most importantly, makes you laugh so hard you will fall off the toilet in a puddle of your own mirth spewn spit. If you are someone you love seems spiritually bankrupt, depressed, lost, or worst of all, interested in philosophy, this book is guaranteed to give them something to look at for a while until they return to video games or substance abuse. Chuck, thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And thanks for sending us your book. It was um, a, a pleasant surprise to read it. And it's quite funny. It's very, what we, what we, I, I'm going to speak for myself here. What we really liked about your book was that it's very easy to understand. It's conversational. It sounds like you just speaking out in a conversation to someone and you've got some great humor mixed in, which I think is always good. I really think that the spiritual journey needs to have a lot of humor and laughter because sometimes we take ourselves way too seriously and that's when uh, things can go sideways. I like how you said, I'm going to speak for myself. And then you said, we and then all I said we? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was good. Uh, but you, yeah, I, I, I think it was, it was quite humorous, uh, well-written, easy to, easy to understand, correct grammar, which is always a plus these days. Yes. So Chuck, how was, um, how was writing the book for you? Like, how did you come to writing the book? Um, well, I, the book came to my head, uh, while I was in the middle of doing something I 
hate, which is home improvement. Um, and you know, about a year and a half, two years ago, my wife um, became motivated to renovate our kitchen. Um, and so fast forwarding, I'm in the middle of uh, painting a window and just feeling miserable. Um, and something just clicked in my head that, um, you know, there must be some purpose to the fact that I'm, I'm married to a person who loves home improvement projects. Um, <laughs> and I, I hate home improvement projects. Uh, and yet I'm married to this person who every so often just gets, gets on fire to, to do these improvements. Um, to and, get you to do these improvements, you mean? Well, yes, of course I'm <laughs> necessary, right? So, um, so I, I literally put down the brush uh, in that moment and started jotting things down. And it became sort of a trip back in time for me into my younger self and, and how I got to be where I am. Um, and, you know, I was, I was deliberate in wanting the book to go where it wanted to go. Um, and I sort of made a deal with my higher power that, um, I'm willing to write this book since you sent it into my brain like a thunderbolt. But, um, my condition is that it's gotta be fun. Uh, I've got to have fun writing it. I've got to make jokes, uh, cause otherwise I'm just no thanks. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the guidance, the people in my life who are, uh, who I tr trust and rely on the most pointed out the humor in the, in the fact that my higher power would ask me to do something that's not fun or that I couldn't have fun with. And that I had to impose that as a condition. Um, so anyway, that's, that's sort of what the process was like for me and how it, how it began. So why it, did you choose agnostic guide to spirituality? Well, I was raised in a family in which religion and God was never discussed. It was just not in reality, um, neither positive nor negative. Um, and so as a young man, I was trying to figure out what the hell am I? Um, and then I stumbled upon this word agnostic, um, and that seemed to describe me. Uh, so I, yeah, I don't really know. I've had no education, uh, and I'm not sure how anybody really ever finds out for real. Uh, about God or about the nature of the universe, the meaning of life, etc. So I just kind of settled comfortably into that description of myself and um, sort of dozed off. <laughs> and, uh, and then the stuff started happening in my life and um, you know, I became a parent. Life became difficult. Um, I became a colossal asshole to the people around me. Um, and things oh, were... Brian, you're familiar with that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't know what you're talking about. But lots of stuff that I hadn't learned about myself yet. Um, it was feeding into old resentments and anger and bitterness. And and um, and I had to start learning. You know, was, I, I've got to start learning or I'm going to lose my family. Um, and so I started reading stuff. Uh, my wife exposed me to um, Eckhart Tolle as a spiritual writer. Um, and a lot of it was, you know, presented in such a concrete way that I was open to it. Um, I was like, this is more about changing how I think than it is about, you know, some magical creature in the sky that's controlling my life. Um, and you know, that, I guess when, when I could bring, come back to rec uh, renovating my kitchen where I'm still 
like trying to adjust how I think and, and, and be more positive, um, you know, it just kind of crystallized for me that this is a lifelong journey of, of again, new situations where I need to apply this, this lesson of improving my mindset, improving my attitude, um, and, and adopting a way of, of looking at the world that, that, uh, is more steeped in love than it is in animosity. And you're a mental health professional, correct? Yes. I'm a psychotherapist, technically speaking. <laughs> yeah, you have a few um, things listed on your book of what you do. Some, I guess, are false and some are true. But I loved, I loved uh, how you put humor in the title of your name. Um, Thank you. So what... Um, like, was there a significant moment that kind of defined this, the start of this journey for you? Um, the birth of my child. Uh, I have one daughter. She's 13 now. Um, and I'd, I'd say really becoming a parent is, is uh, the big impetus toward starting to look at myself um, you know, in the role I have in this person's life. Um, and I don't remember exactly when it was that it occurred to me that if I think of myself as a fuck up all the time, I'm going to um, make that real for my kid and she's going to have a fuck up as a father. Um, you know, the self-fulfilling prophecy thing. But at some point when she was very young, um, you know, I'll never forget a moment where I'm putting her in a car seat she's probably like five months old or something. Um, I'm putting her in her car seat and we just make eye contact. And the expression on her face is just total wonder and absorbing. Like, uh, like she was looking at God, <laughs> you know, as if, I mean, that's sort of the book on her face that I interpreted. And I'm like, Holy shit, I need to measure up to this shit. Um, <laughs> you know, like, kind of really step <laughs> well, up at least your story wasn't her first words were fuck up. No, no, although they could have been. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so that that's um, that's what made it real for me, I guess, answering your question. So I'm not a parent, but Brian, Lisa, would you say that that's something that became like, not that either of you thought you were a fuck up or anything, but just that when you have kids that that becomes a reality to start like observing yourself more and where you can be better. Oh, absolutely. You, you have this feeling that you have to be responsible. Even if you're already responsible in your life, it's, it's like the next, it's like the next level. It's like you, you, you're in the minor leagues and then you have to be professional. It's like this kid is going to, see what I do and hear what I say. And you just, yeah, there's, there's this added weight in you, in your life to just, I'm responsible for guiding this child towards adulthood. I thought of it as, I mean, I think it's, it's colossal. I mean, the way that it feels, it's just, it's such a huge responsibility that you feel. And, for me, I felt like, oh my gosh, I'm responsible for this person's baggage that they're going to carry with them 
you know, for the rest of their life or, you know, whether they're going to be a well-adjusted human or they're not going to be is, is basically in my hands. And that's just such a massive responsibility. You do, like Brian said, you think of it's now everything that you say, the things that you do, anything that you do in front of them, you know, is having an impact on them. Yeah, it's big. Now, that being said, I think a lot of people, I don't want to say fail at being a parent, but I just think back to my daughter's formative years. And because I did not get along with her mother, they saw, she saw lots of fighting, you know? So you you can have the greatest of intentions. You know, what's the, the saying? The, the, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So you can have the best intentions to be this great parent. And then you're still who you are. And your kid at the end of the day is going to see who you are, despite your intentions, unless you can make some grand adjustments and change who you are. I've, I pretty much did that. <laughs> I mean, I just, as far as my relationship with my husband, with their father, I didn't want certain things to impact them. So I didn't handle them in a way that I would have handled them had my kids not been there. I mean, it changed everything. But they still saw things. I mean, you and I have talked about about times and, you know, stories, you know, where you thought you were hiding things from them and they're, you know. Yeah, when they they, got they, older. they They still recognize it. I mean, you can't. You can't hide it forever. You know, it's no accident that the major theme of existentialist literature is responsibility, right? And, you know, becoming a parent for a lot of us puts us in touch with responsibility in a way that we never had been before. Um, and, and it starts to open your eyes to, well, I have a responsibility to my child, but there's all these other people around also, you know, what, what's my responsibility to them? What's my responsibility to myself, um, along with that. And so when you start to take responsibility seriously, you know, I mean, Brian, your point is really, uh, on target in that some people have, some blocks or some barriers that prevent them from being able to tackle that as well as we might like them to. Um, you know, and then there are times, you know, I'm still a work in progress, you know, even though I had really been working on my own personal transformation and not trying to be an asshole, I'm still, whenever I'm renovating a kitchen, I'm certainly am. Um, <laughs> you know, so, you know, the fact that I can grow, that I can improve, that I can be intentional about inserting things into my life that help me thrive as a human being um, has immeasurable impact on my child and in, impacts on everybody I interact with. Um, it, it enabled me to write this book for one thing, um, <laughs> you know, and, and, and that's been meaningful for, for me and, and folks that I've talked with. Um, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting idea because it's, it's no secret to our listeners. I don't have a great relationship with my daughter presently. And you know, she, she won't speak with me. Uh, I haven't seen her in over a year. Um, but I'm the best version of myself I've ever been. And it's ironic that I might not have been the greatest dad while I was home. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I definitely feel that I am a better person than who I was when I was married to her mom. 
And I don't get to share that with her. I don't get to be a better person for her to interact with and learn from and grow from because of whatever reason. So it's, 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 it's interesting. I mean, being a parent is, is hard. It's lifelong. And you sometimes don't get a chance to be a parent. Right. Well, and you know, the parents that I work with who are in your situation, you know, it's an excruciating experience. Um, and the pain can sometimes be really, really crippling, um, for folks. And I, and I have endless compassion for anybody in, in the experience of not being able to be in their child's life when they would like to be. Um, and I've worked with a lot of folks who are in that predicament. Um, and they wrestle with, you know, again, in this existential way, um, what do I do with this pain? What do I do with this reality? You know, what, what is within my power and what, and what is powerlessness, um, related to this? Um, you know, I'm thinking of one person in particular who just kind of settled on the idea that all I have power to do is to communicate to my child that, that he is wanted, you know, that I'm, I'm interested and I'm available. It's, and it's not that I'm just subtracting myself from your life because you don't have value. Uh, he had the opportunity to communicate that to his son, that, you know what, you have value to me. And I understand that I need to respect this boundary for you right now, because that's healthy for you. But if you change your mind at any point, I'm all in. Um, and that, you know, as much as we can feel the pain of what's subtracted from not having that relationship, um, that's huge because I've, you know, in my work, I see lots of children that have grown up without a sense of being valuable to that parent who was absent and constantly questioning and wondering, you know, subconsciously even like, what, what is my value and what is my worth? Um, it's a huge gift that any, you know, even small interactions with a child um, can change things in ways that we may not see or understand. What is your experience or thoughts with um, energy and um, sending someone energy through like really positive thoughts, loving thoughts, I like um, visual manifestation ideas? If you're in a position, say like Brian, where you can't speak to your child, but you still have the ability to communicate through energy. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I tend to look at energy as a word that we use to describe uh, interactions that take place between people that we don't understand or, or can't explain. Um, and there are lots of different categories of those um, in my in my imagination. Um, and I, you know, it's it's a vague enough term that I can that I can have this sense of all right. Well, I'm going to pray that my child receives this. Um, and, you know, having faith in, in energy or having faith that there's some way that the universe translates that into action, um, is, is part of what enables me to, uh, be more positive and enables, uh, me to get a sense of meaning and, uh, and, uh, uh, contentment or not contentment, but acceptance. Um, in the situation that I'm that I'm trying to address. 
So let's talk about God, source, the universe. You call it Corey. Corey. <laughs> yes. I also call it the magical. Uh, take, take us. <laughs> I also call it the magical sky DJ. I think that's my favorite. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The magical sky DJ. I think that's a great term. Yeah. Any other name so, but God, I think is a great idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there are a lot of people have a lot of hangups. I had growing up a lot of hangups with God because I didn't really enjoy being raised Catholic as a kid. I didn't like, I didn't have positive experiences through the church that I was attending. Um, so yeah, for me, I just really steered away from calling. I always believed in, in that there was some sort of divine power that was orchestrating everything or was, you know, the source, but I always went with universe. It was just easier for me. It resonated with me. But now, like now that I've kind of got moved past my hangups over religion and I don't mind the word God anymore, but it's very interesting to your description of why you chose Corey. So tell our audience why you chose the name Corey. Um, because I've never really had a positive association with that name. Uh, um, Everybody I've ever wait wait with with the name Corey or God Corey, um, <laughs> you know, everybody I've ever met who, who's named Corey is just sort of this dumpy, vaguely unimpressive person. Um, but I live my life, you know, trying to maintain awareness of of my belief in a divine spark within everybody, even people named Corey. Um, so I chose the name Corey to just kind of represent, like, it doesn't matter what we call it. Um, but it's alive within all of us. It's, um, you know, even people named Corey deserve that sense of respect and, um, (laughs) you know, value. (laughs) So I apologize to all those out, all your listeners who might be named Corey or love somebody named Corey. It's really not personal, but that's just a representation of my own experience. The same applies to people named Chuck for what it's worth. Um, I've, you know, not met very many people named Chuck who are really awesome guys. Um, (laughs) and that's my name. So I didn't feel like I could use that because that would, you know, speaking, speaking, you know, I was curious, I was curious about that. You did not, when you wrote the book, you decided obviously not to put your name on it. Why, why, what was that? Is it because you're a mental health professional and you're protecting your patients or what was the thinking? Uh, it's, It's more just for fun. Um, it's like I could put my own name on it or I could invent this name that sounds silly and fun and sends the message of, uh, you know, the pseudo superciliousness. I'm really impressed that I just used that term right now. Um, <laughs> not even sure what it means, but there's sort of like, um, the silliness and this fun, uh, element to it. I was just looking for every opportunity to infuse humor and fun uh, where I yeah. could. Did you, did you read that Nicole at the beginning? Yeah. Yeah, I did. Good. Why? <laughs> I just couldn't remember if you did. And I didn't know if our listeners knew he was the honorable reverend, Dr. Swami Onslow D Penny Packer, the 13th PhD MD. There's a lot there. <laughs> I personally like H- I personally liked HPV slash run DMC. I, I, those are my two favorites. <laughs> those, are, those are the important, um, those are the important initials. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, I, you know, the reason why I think it's so great is because there, and, and this is to take no credit away from anyone who's gone through the enduring education to get those like initials at the end of your name through your degrees in school and all of that. But oftentimes, you know, there's a lot of ego behind those initials. And so I really love the way you kind of took the ego out and made fun of it a little bit and threw in some of those interesting, I think, much more interesting (laughs) initials. Uh, So I I, I actually love that. I was a big fan of it. Um, So I, I, when we were, okay, when I was reading your book, and you were talking about this idea of having an imaginary friend, which, you know, is is Corey to you, like in a sense, like it's kind of like an imaginary, you, you talk to this person, they don't exist really in our reality. But a lot of us, we talk to this higher power, this source, God, whatever you want to call it. And I think this isn't, this is actually a conversation we've had on our podcast several times with Brian about this idea of the power of imagination and what does it matter if it exists or not? Can you go into more detail on the, um, that kind of topic on why, because for a lot of skeptics or even an atheist um, would think like, what if, what's the point? if it doesn't even exist or you can't see it. Yeah. Well, and the point is for life to get better. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm pretty pragmatic about this. Um, you know, if I have an imaginary friend called Corey and I'm not hurting anybody in that relationship, but in fact, I'm a more positive person. Uh, I have a better relationship with things that are beyond my control. Um, then, then what the fuck does it matter to anybody else? that I'm running my life, you know, with this awareness of this imaginary friend. But it seems to be an affront to some people that, that I have an imaginary friend. Um, you know, it's, it's, there's this sort of ethic out there, um, that of, of, um, uh, empiricism, you know, that we place the highest value on, on empiricism, that we have to be able to, with our five senses, detect and observe things, um, or else they have no value or validity. Um, and I get that because a lot has been accomplished with empiricism. Um, a lot has been accomplished with science. Uh, and at the same time, a lot has been accomplished with imagination. Um, and, you know, if, if my conception of Corey or the universe or the Magic Sky DJ is, is nothing more than a mental trick that I perform on myself so that I can have a better relationship with things beyond my control and be a more positive person, um, you know, that, that to me is not much different than reading a great work of fiction and feeling inspired by the characters and wanting to emulate somebody and, and kind of pattern my life after, you know, an inspiring character in a, in a fiction novel or in a spiritual text from thousands of years ago. <laughs> you know, they, they kind of go together for me. Um, you know, there's been arguments made that, you know, lots of violence and uh, uh, catastrophes and have happened in the name of religion. Um, and in the book, I'm careful to point out that uh, I'm not about religion. You know, religion, I'm not a fan of religion necessarily. I'm here talking about, you know, what's my personal relationship with, with things beyond my control, with humanity, uh, and how am I going to make myself uh, a more positive person? 
Ah, that's interesting. I think that's a great way of looking at it. What is your, what is your experience with meditation? Because I really loved how you broke down the whole meaning behind meditation because so many people, when they try it, they're like, I just can't do it. Fuck it. This isn't working for me. And you really had a great way of explaining that. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, mean, I was introduced to meditation um, from reading uh, Eckhart Tolle and reading some Buddhism stuff. Um, and I was, you know, I feel fortunate that I had the, the influences in my life that helped me see that, you know, meditation can take a fraction of a second. Um, and it's a spiritual experience in that it's an experience of reality as, as it exists right now. So every second that I spend aware of my immediate reality, um, you know, is a spiritual second. It's a real second as opposed to time spent uh, time traveling, you know, taking my brain into the past or into the future, um, which only exists, you know, both of those only exist in my imagination, right? Some, you know, can develop concepts of things, but it's not, you know, actual reality. Um, and so, you know, my, my experience of meditation has always been that I can just sort of do it real quick while I'm taking a piss and, um, you know, I'm, I'm being spiritual. <laughs> um, and I think in the book I talk about how, you know, there's, you know, that can get you some, some important growth that can help train your mind. And, you know, there is more spiritual growth than that. But in my experience, it was a really, really nice start, put it that way. Well, and even how you how you talk about prayer, I thought I thought was really refreshing. Very very similar, I think, uh -huh. idea. Yeah, and to me, prayer is um, you know again, it kind of goes back to if you have an imaginary friend, you know, maybe you're talking to nobody when you pray, but the worst thing that can happen there is that you're you're kind of getting centered with yourself about what your needs are, what's important to you, um, and that in itself is a healthy practice. I, yeah, I thought I thought that was what really caught my attention is, you know, the worst thing that can happen is there's nobody there, but you're working yep. some shit out. What would you say to our audience members who are trying to meditate but are having a, a difficulty in doing it the way that they, they believe they're supposed to be doing it? Um, I would say uh, punch yourself in the nose. <laughs> And then take a second to notice the feeling of pain in your nose. And then you've just meditated. Um, you know, the people that I encounter who struggle with meditation are making more of it than it really is. Um, they're, they're usually highly intelligent people who think it must be some like giant mental trick or, you know, something that only really highly evolved gurus can do. Um, or they think they need to be able to do it for hours at a time or, you know, even 10 minutes is a long time in my head, you know, um, in my mind for, for a meditation practice. Um, you know, I'd rather meditate for three seconds, 400 times a day than, you know, meditate in one sitting for whatever the math works out to there. Um, <laughs> you know, cause to me that's, that's integrating, uh, awareness and mindfulness in my, everyday routine and everyday life. Jack Cornfield writes about this in, in some of his books. You know, we, we have a life to live here. I mean, who has time to sit down 
for an hour and just sort of breathe. Um, is it worth it? Sure. If you, if you can structure your life to build that in, will it pay dividends? Absolutely. Um, but oftentimes, you know, that kind of leads to this idea that we, we have to make, make this into something big, um, rather than just starting small and accepting what we're able to do moment to moment. Well, it's, it's interesting because does it have the same benefit? And it probably does, you know, in terms of sitting down. Well, it has a hell of a lot more benefit than getting frustrated minutes, and giving up. Uh, and just saying, oh, fuck this, I can't meditate, yeah. so never mind. <laughs> you know, but if that person right. becomes a person who, well, I'll meditate for three seconds, 10 times a day, or for three seconds, three times a day. Um, okay, well, you're, you've gotten somewhere. I think as a society, we just tend to give up really easily if something's not going the way we think it's supposed to go. And I know like for myself, um, like when it came to yoga, I just wanted to give up because I thought I was really crap at it. And who wants to do something that people believe they're really crap at? No one wants to do something they're crap at. They want to do things that they're good at because it makes you feel good. And so when you start doing something that you realize you're not that great at compared to what other people are maybe sharing their experiences with you, it can become very frustrating and, and you're, you're, you're comparing, you're in the ego and you're, you're basically just focusing on how you're not doing it the way other people are doing it. And, you know, if I had taken that stance with my yoga, I would have never had all of the experiences um, and understandings and uh, I guess you can call them like spiritual awakenings or self-awareness awakenings that came from that on top of the fact that my body is just so much happier because it moves better now and I don't get the back pain that I used to get and I don't have the limitation in my movements, um, whether it's through running or sports or anything like that, that used to like slow me down. So all of these things I would have never been able to have had I not continued through and just given up. And I think sometimes we just throw the towel in because we don't understand where the benefit is because we don't see it right away. Well, and that's a beautiful example of how you didn't allow yourself to be trapped in a static you know, definition of yourself. As in, I'm, I'm just a person who can't do yoga and that's how I'll always be versus I can, I can start and, and learn and make progress, you know, and do this little bit and then this little bit and, and gradually improve and learn. Um, you know, when we look at ourselves um, as a parent would look at a small child, you know, a healthy parent, which I talk about some in the book too, it's like, well, you know, we don't expect the child to have calculus at age three, but we expect, you know, the child will start where they are and kind of develop and learn and make progress at the pace that that is appropriate for them. Um, and then somewhere along the way, we, we miss out on the idea that we can apply that same standard to ourselves, that we can start small, that, you know, maybe, maybe we're neophytes, maybe we're babies at certain things and we can develop um, and that, that we're worth developing. So it's okay to meditate for three seconds a day. You don't have to do 10. That's fine. And it's okay to meditate in movement. You know, you don't have to sit in the lotus position. Um, you know, you can meditate while you're walking. You can meditate while you're playing tennis. You know, it's a mindfulness. I mean, you know, I'm not speaking here as an authority on transcendental meditation and, you know, what, what the you know, Eastern, you know, monks would tell you to do. I'm speaking in terms of from a practical matter, you know, how can I make mindfulness more my habit? Um, and, and that's, 
to me, the real goal here. Um, and there's lots of avenues for it, and there's no rules about it. Um, there's nobody who can, if somebody comes up to you and says that you're doing it wrong, that, that person is, um, please excise that person from your life. <laughs> no. I agree. I agree. We don't, no one needs that yes. kind of judgment. Um, yeah. And, and it's like, you know, when I think I, 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 cause I can remember this day vividly in my mind where I went to a yoga class for the first time and it was a hot yoga class. And I just remember looking at myself in the mirror and absolutely hating the reflection that was looking back at me. Like I mm. just was so in, um, in such a dark place of just disapproval, hatred towards my body, hatred towards the fact that I couldn't do something. It just, it, it really was a test. And so, I mean, if there's anything I can say to people who are having trouble with meditating, like oftentimes these activities that we find ourselves in that we're not that great at are going to be major doorways to um, big self-awareness uh, revelations that are going to probably bring in a lot more joy into your life, but they're disguised, the door is disguised by this ugly um, experience in the beginning. And um, there's, there's also a huge sense of accomplishment when you do like move through that kind of stuff. You know, it's, it's, it's good to feel good about the things that you can do easily, like, but it's really good when you actually accomplish something that was really not that easy to do in the beginning. And it's generally just a matter of getting out of our own way um, and getting out of our own way and, and, and getting exactly. out of our own way. In my experience, it's a matter of changing my, you know, getting out of my tunnel vision view that, that I see out of my own eyeballs, looking at myself from the third person, you know, and applying that, all right, well, what would I expect of somebody else here? Or, you know, um, uh, you know, I've, I've learned to loathe myself somehow and think of myself as gross and disgusting. Um, and I guess, am, am I arrogant enough to make that the only, the only position that I'm willing to accept or consider? That's a great point. Because often we think that if we see ourselves that way, somehow we're, <laughs> I don't know how to just, but I don't know how this makes sense, but somehow we're some sort of martyr. Like we've just martyred ourselves. For I think a lot of times way. we like receive not... this lesson that to place others above ourselves is, is, um, you know, noble. Um, it's selfless. Yeah. It's, you know, it's serving others. Um, and we don't as readily hear the message that you can't pour from an empty cup. You know, you've got to have energy. You've got to have inspiration. You've got to have your own um, nourishment in order to be able to serve others, in order to be able to have your place, you know, in the web, so to speak. Um, and, and, you know, somehow we just kind of, I think, simplistically are, are drawn to this idea. Well, as long as I'm helping somebody else, you know, that's what's important. Yeah, forget about you. I saw this Instagram post, this Instagram post the other day, and it was from some spiritual Instagram channel that I follow, but it said, love is putting others' happiness before your own. Mm -hmm. And I, and I was like, 
I had to comment. I didn't. I never comment on Instagram posts, but I was just like, yeah. that just is so wrong. <laughs> that just love is about loving yourself first, not only. And I know that firsthand. I did that most of my life, putting mm-hmm. everybody's happiness before my own. And that is not yeah. love. If you don't know how to love yourself, you literally don't know how to love other people. You just you just think you do. <laughs> like, and hmm. it's, and it's, a, it's a very deep illusion. Well, and, you know, I found that people who don't uh, love themselves or at least respect themselves, you know, maybe loving myself is for some of us a, too high of a, or, or a little bit too distant of a goal to think about, but to at least respect ourselves and treat ourselves fairly. You know, if we're not willing to do that, then we actually make pretty shitty teachers and pretty shitty parents. Um, and we're not serving others very well uh, at all in reality when that happens. And I know that from experience. Um, you know, I became a teacher because I had this in the mind that I wanted to you know, help children, wanted to serve children. And of course, that's noble. And I still serve children and believe in serving children. Um, but, you know, with this sort of martyred, selfless ethic to it, um, it doesn't work. Yeah, I feel like the martyrdom is something that religion, this one of the, um, it's one of the downfalls of what religion tried to do where they, I feel like they celebrate it. They celebrate, well, the whole idea of Jesus dying on the cross. I mean, Lisa, this will get into the book, Saving Jesus. Like this whole idea that there's a God out there that would sacrifice his only son um, for everyone else is just not a very loving father. <laughs> it's not. And, and this, and, and that's where this whole idea of martyrdom being a selfless act, this loving act, we've all got to sacrifice ourselves really puts us in a society where no one's, no one's in a position to really love because there's, there's no idea of how to even do it for yourself. And so everyone's just taking each other out, like of the equation, basically. Like you're literally taking yourself out of the equation. And that that whole idea totally disempowers yeah, it's you. Very. I mean, it gives authority control over you because then they can just pull the, you know, you're a martyr. This is the cross yeah. you have to carry. Yeah. Card. Guilt. Guilt is a bad mm-hmm. um, emotion to to allow yourself to get caught up in because. Well, never mind that on the consciousness scale, it's extremely low, below fear. And so anything that you try to create from when you're feeling guilty about anything is um, going to only, it's only going to create something of that same energy. So if you want to create something in your life or, or, or help people in your life, serve others in your life, it's got to come from a higher vibration or a higher energy like love. Um, or, or something closer to it than guilt. <laughs> I think that's the main thing that organized religion teaches. I, I don't think they're doing it on purpose, but I think that is if, if you look at most jokes about, you know, I mean, when you're in the religion, you know, you just look at, oh yeah, you know, guilt trip, you know I mean? That's, that's what it is. Guilt is what we take away from organized religion. Yeah. And we're made to believe that somehow if we are a martyr we're going to get more brownie points in heaven. But yes. An organized religion, you know, throughout history, you know, there's multitudes of examples. Of, it's not used to empower individuals. Um, you know, it's used for, for power structures and for greed and, and so on and so forth. Uh, I'm much more of a fan of disorganized religion. 
um, which which more often <laughs> empowers individuals um, at the price of being somewhat uh, chaotic and <laughs> you know, disorganized. So, what is your what does your wife think about your book? Uh, I thought you might ask that. Um, my, has she read it? No, she has not read it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and there's two reasons for that. She and I don't really share the same sense of humor. Um, <laughs> and aside from the jokes, she's already heard everything in it. Um, so, you know, so it's not as though there's anything new in there for her, if you get my meaning. Um, Fair enough. Know, only opportunities for disconnection because she'll come, you know, she'll come to me and say, I don't get this. And I'll say, it's a joke. And, <laughs> you know, her sense of humor is, <laughs> is, uh, you know, it's very powerful, but it's it's more specific and more selective than mine. Um, and I just like to spray shotgun blasts of stuff everywhere. And occasionally it will hit in a way that she can appreciate on a humor level. Um, here, here. We, we have very similar approaches to humor. Brian mm -hmm. and I are married, by yeah. the way. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so you sounds Lisa, like you, sounds like you can relate. Fine. Yes, very much so. <laughs> So I'm not opposed to I'm not yeah. opposed to her reading it. Uh, you know, she's not opposed. Whenever we talk about it, we both kind of like shrug our shoulders, like, "Yeah, you could do that if you want to." But you know, it's sort of like, "Well, if I hadn't written it, would you read it?" No, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not my kind of not my kind of thing. So, all right, well, I don't really need you to write it just because I wrote read it just because I wrote it. You know, I'll get my. Do you guys have similar? beliefs i mean you, you 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 don't see eye to eye on humor but do you see eye to eye on general belief structures yeah we're compatible i mean she's far less philosophical than i am about it you know i'm interested in existentialism and i'm and, and, you know, i get my head wrapped up into it and uh geek out on that stuff but you know she's more um you know just sort of has her beliefs about the universe and that you pray and that you can um I don't really want to speak for her beliefs, but you know we're, we're pretty compatible. Uh, what about um, any of your friends? Has have any of your friends read the book where it's actually made a, a positive impact on their life? Yeah. Did you tell anybody that you wrote a book, or are you hiding? Yes. The rock? Um, <laughs> you know, my it's tough. I mean, if you ever want to, I don't know if any of you have ever written a book, but if you ever want to terrify yourself, um, then write a book and then tell everybody about it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I know. I know where you're yeah. coming from. Trust or me. make a YouTube video. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Even worse, probably. Same feeling, I'm sure. Yeah, or a podcast. Yeah. Sure, it's. Um, <laughs> yeah, they're similar. Yeah. yeah. All, exactly. We've all been yeah. there. Um, mm -hmm. So, yes, I reluctantly spread knowledge of this book to everybody that I could uh, encounter. Um, and re I say reluctantly because, you know, it's kind of vulnerable and, and there's these all these weird and provocative envelope pushing thoughts and jokes and awkward sexualized humor and immature humor. And, you know, there's people I respect. Um, are they going to respect me after they see what could come out of my brain? You know, if I'm not being careful, um, yes, lots of, lots of masturbation in the book. <laughs> well, masturbation humor. Yeah. Um, yes. I didn't masturbate. Into I like the things you say about, Sorry, I was, just, I, didn't, I was just gonna say it made me think of porn as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I didn't. I didn't masturbate into the actual book. Um, 
but I'm not afraid of the topic. Good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you um, you did a good job of incorporating um, humor, curse words, sex, and the meaning of life. This way I look at it, you know, I thought you did a great job doing all, all interconnected. And I think the fact that you're not afraid to talk about it is really important because in America, people more so that I think than anywhere else in the world are so afraid to talk about sex and masturbation and pornography and just it's all so hidden and suppressed. And it's such a huge problem here in America. Problem. That's the word. Yeah, I, I think it does get yeah. in our way a lot and it's you know it's not to me from a if i'm if i'm operating from a place of spiritual connectedness it's a little bit more obvious to me that the universe is not that concerned if i rub one out um <laughs> you know <laughs> like yeah okay sure i could be tied up in that or you know i understand that there's norms and you know, every society has their norms of things that are taboo and whatever, but, um, well, that gets right back to the, the guilt, right? Yeah. But you're giving yeah, yourself absolutely. pleasure. God forbid. Mm -hmm. God does forbid. make everybody else happy. <laughs> not yourself. God does forbid. And that's where the guilt comes from. Yeah. And we, we, we heap that upon ourselves. Corey, Corey does not forbid. But Corey, Corey. does not forbid. I know, but that's, that's what we're, that's what, again, I think so much dysfunction swirls around organized religion. I think so yes. much dysfunction yeah. swirls around fear and organized religion is used as a tool to control because control is a common, is a common response Truth, to fear. Yeah. Uh, and we all do it when we, when we yeah. fear something, we want to institute some method of control so we can avoid what we fear. Um, and then that grows, uh, that operates on an individual level as well as on sy systematic ways. And you can say the same thing about governments, uh, as well as religions, you know, any sort of institutions, schools, I could go on for days about schools, uh, doing this, you know, there's, there's all kinds of fear. So we look for control strategies, um, and whatever tool or implement is there, you know, including misinterpreting ancient texts or, you know, religious teachings, um, it's just another way of doing that same thing. I agree. Um, Does your daughter go to public or private she school? She goes to public school. Has your daughter read your book? Does she know you've she's written no, a book that she, she cannot uh, read? Well, no. She knows that I've written a book. Um, she knows that there's uh, humor in it. Well, the way I put it to her is um, that uh, the best way to describe it is like, are you sure you want to read this book? You know, I kind of put it back in her lap. Um, you know, you've seen the cover, um, <laughs> you know, and I'll tell you that I, I'm open about sexual topics in this book. Um, are you interested? And she kind of like gets this nervous look on her face. You know, um, I've, I've, I've recommended you probably don't, you know, unless you're really comfortable hearing about that. You know, she's 13. And so at 13, like the last thing you want is your is to hear anything from your parent being frank and open about anything personal. Um, but it, but it's a, but it would be a good book for her upon high school graduation. I mean, this is, this is, a, there's a lot of really great information in here. Obviously, you know, you wrote the letter to your, to your younger 
college-aged self. And I think these are some of the things we all naturally come across and struggle with and deal with when we go to college. So what a, what a great little... Yeah, I mean, I'll, I think when she's ready to see a picture of a dildo and know that her dad put it there, then she, you know, then she'll maybe crack open the book and get something out of it, um, <laughs> you know, and uh, and if and maybe she won't get that, but maybe she'll be like my wife, where she's like, well, I don't really have his sense of humor, and I've heard everything else that he has to say anyway, and I can accept that too. Um, you know, she gets to interact with me all the time, and if she feels like that's good enough, then then that's fine. There's lots of books out there. Yeah. Well, speaking on that, you know. There's there are tons of books out there, but and this goes to anyone who's listening, who's thought about writing a book or wanting to kind of put something out there of their own um, creativity, but they feel like it's already been said or done and like, who's going to want to hear your version of it. One of the great things about your book, Chuck, is that because you speak in such a um, a dude, like a dude <laughs> way, <laughs> right? Um your message is going to fall on ears that resonate with your lingo. Sometimes if, you know, the messages are always very similar in all these books. It's not like we're hearing anything new, uh, you know, unless someone's really coming from like a really like far out there place that, you know, is really not really been tapped into yet. But the messages are all generally the same. However, we all have our own unique way of communicating and expressing something and not everyone resonates with it, but the people that do need to hear it in that exact way. And that's what's going to allow them to absorb the message and take it in and really like work with it. And I feel like your audience isn't an audience that has been catered to as much in at least the spiritual community. And so I think it's great. I think it's um, I think you did a great job of, opening the door to those who wouldn't normally have the door open to them. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I did have my younger self in mind as an audience when I wrote the book. And uh, you know, what would I have been receptive to at age 20, uh, you know, when I was depressed and, you know, going through a bunch of age 20 kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, I heard you say that, you know, a lot of times we don't really cater to that younger person audience. Um, you know, but then churches seem to be getting older and older and, and attracting fewer young people. Um, and it's true. We've got to speak, speak their language. So, you know, um, you know, be willing to do that. Yeah. So I'm, you know, you writing that letter is really cool because I actually, something I get with my client, I, I get my clients to do um, is to, at some point when we're working together is to write them their a younger version of themselves, like whether it's 10 years ago, 20 years ago, whatever it is, to write a letter of what would you say to them now? Like, what advice do you have to give them? And it's a really powerful tool. Like, how did you feel that that worked for you? Um, it, it forced me into some discomfort that I needed to experience. Um, you know, I, I initially started off thinking, oh, this will be funny. Um, <laughs> and it was. Yeah, yeah, most people do. Right, most I people could make do. some good humor out of this, and, and I did. But also, like, it's like, oh, there's some sore spots in there that I want to spend some time with. Uh, okay. Um, so, you know, it's it was eye-opening in that way for me. 
to undertake that. Yeah. Lisa, Brian, have you ever done that? No. No, I've never written myself a letter. I have not. You know, I wrote, when I was 35, I wrote myself a letter to open on my 40th birthday. Oh, yeah? And I kept it in a drawer. And then, you know, I left the Cayman Islands and I moved here to Denver. <laughs> I don't know where, what happened to it? Oh. I got, got lost somehow. And I was, when on my 40th birthday, I was so excited to read the letter because I was like, I want to know what I would have written myself back then. You know, like, what would I, have, what, what, and I couldn't find it. I was so upset with myself, <laughs> but I've, I've written letters to my future self and I've written letters to my past self and it's actually really interesting and like you said Chuck like there are some sore spots that come up that really kind of help you see where you still kind of like need some love like some like areas that are still open wounds so to speak yeah I need some need some healing need something I mean that past version of myself is still alive inside me um, and depending on what I encounter you know, may spill out and present himself like a, I'm in a kitchen renovation and maybe my nine-year-old self is going to come out and, <laughs> you know, pitch a fit, um, have a tantrum or something. But, you know, I, I find that writing letters to my future self that I'll read later is not realistic. I'm not nearly organized enough to make that happen. Um, but writing letters to my past self, um, I had done one other than the one in the book uh, previously. Um, so I say this as though it's like it's this giant practice that I have reliably, but no. <laughs> In the two experiences I have with it, um, you know, it it does sort of connect me with some pieces of myself that I had been preferring to ignore. What would you say is one of the most helpful things that you've been through that really um, brought more joy into your life? Um. In the book, I mentioned that I started going to church uh, when my daughter was young, maybe three or four years old, around the same time that I was having these other experiences that kind of opened my mind to a spiritual practice. Um, and the church I go to is Unitarian Universalist Church, uh, which I think of as disorganized religion, and I'm not the only person that's described it that way. Um, but that's a good thing, and there's lots uh, make a long story short, I connected with people there. There was a, uh, a parenting group that started meeting um, around the time I started going uh, explicitly for, for parents of young children to have a support group and to talk about you know, spiritual growth in the context of their parenting struggles and triumphs and journey. Um, and that changed my life. Um, and I can't quite put my finger on any moment or anything that that I can describe to that, but it was just this sense of other people are uh, connected to my experience and I connect to theirs. Other people are available to me. Um, I grew up being ostracized and uh, very isolated. And so it was a new experience for me to relate to people on that vulnerable of a level. You know, when you're talking about your parenting, you're talking about something pretty intense and vulnerable. Um, and that, that made me realize that community uh, can be a part of what makes life meaningful for me. Um, and so, okay, I'm going to this church and maybe the people, the church's idea of God or the universe or, you know, the minister's idea of it or the person sitting three seats down from me's idea of it 
doesn't match with mine. That's not as important to me as, wow, these are some great people that I'm learning from and uh, feeling connected to. What was your favorite part of the book? Do you have a favorite part of the book or a part that you're most proud of what you came up with or? Um, I guess I can't really pick one. Um, I have some favorite jokes. <laughs> um, you know, the humor, I look at it, it's, it's like finding a seashell. You know, if you're alone on the beach and you find this really big, magnificent seashell, that's a very cool experience, but it's also a little bit empty in that there's nobody to share it with. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when a joke arrives in my head, I, you know, I just want that to compound the experience of it by sharing it. So, you know, I some of the stuff that, that came into my head that really made me laugh and uh, it's just gratifying to be able to to put that out there and have people also point to it and say, oh yeah, that's really funny. I was just gonna say, I love that your footnotes are jokes, mainly. It's really cute. Yes. It's really cute. And one of my favorite ones is when you talk about a gift versus a transaction. Oh yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, that wasn't really a joke, but it's really profound. No, it's a good one. We need to talk about that. Yeah, tell us about that. Um, Why don't you read it, Lisa? Yeah. You want me to read it? Okay, it says, thankfully, my parents, via years of patient explaining, helped me realize the difference between a gift and a transaction. Let's say I give you tickets to a nude barbecue whitewater rafting experience. If it is a gift, I am bestowing something on you purely out of my desire for you to have that object or experience, and I require nothing in return. If it's a transaction, I am expecting repayment of some kind, even if it's just a thank you, and I get annoyed if you do not provide what I am expecting. I have nothing against transactions as long as both people understand what they are supposed to give and take. Yeah. Yeah, this connects to the guilt thing that we were talking about before, right? You know, where we, you know, guilt can come up a lot when we feel like we haven't fulfilled our end of a transaction. Um, And oftentimes it's a transaction that was never explicitly stated uh, or it was imposed upon us uh, against our will. Um, You know, like we grew up in this environment where something was expected of us and we never had a chance to consent to it. and so, you know, my own journey of guilt had to do with my parents being very supportive and generous to me, uh, the bastards. And so, <laughs> you know, and I and me seeing myself as an unworthy piece of shit for much of my life that, you know, brought in a lot of guilt. Um, and, and the guilt for me was, you know, you know, more of that control strategy of in my head, I'm trying to make them make their behavior match up with what I think is right. Um you know, pretty arrogant thing to do. Um, and, and so they helped me learn that, that, Hey, look, this isn't a transaction here. Um, you know, as parents, we want our kids to have as much benefits and advantages and, and chances of success as possible. This is something that we're doing cause we want to do it. Um, so fuck you if you don't like it, was essentially the message, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, we're doing it. And, uh, and so, I lost my train of thought, but you know, oftentimes the toxicity that happens in relationships comes from, from these sort of, um, unex, unexplained or un- uncommunicated, uncommunicated expectations. Thank you. Yeah. These transactions that, well, because I 
do the dishes and take the dog for a walk and, and, you know, do your laundry, um, you're going to give me sex. Uh, but we never really shook hands on that. That's just sort of, <laughs> <laughs> you know, isn't that what we're You're just a mind reader. You're just a mind reader and you <laughs> yeah. know what I'm thinking. Yeah. <laughs> That's so right. common in relationships though, whether it be, you know, I run around the house and clean today and then I just automatically expect that you're going to notice that and now you're going to go do something. Is that martyrdom? Or you're going to do it tomorrow. If I bust my ass, yeah. and I did this for years, if I bust my ass doing the things that I think are going to make you happy, then in return, you'd better damn well be happy. Um, that's the transaction. And That's a no. very interesting <laughs> point there. That's, that's actually, that is a good one because that's actually one that's not spoken of very often. Right. And it turns yeah. out I was doing the things that I thought should make the person happy as opposed to listening to her about what would actually make her happy. Um, and I had opposed a transaction on the situation, you know, that would fulfill this white knight narrative that I wanted to live out. I like the book, the five, I like the book, the five love languages, because it just brings to your awareness that different people feel loved in different ways. Some people want to hear words. Some people want actions and one person may be giving the other person what they need to feel love, but that's not the thing the other person needs at all. And then they don't feel loved and just understanding what the other person actually wants. Mm-hmm. Just because, wait, there, there was a, there was a, a quote that I have. I don't remember who said it, but it's, it's just because someone doesn't love you the way you want doesn't mean they don't love you with their whole heart. Exactly. Yeah. But also this whole idea of transactions and gifts Gifts is unconditional love. You know, that's the basis of unconditional love. You're giving not to receive. You're giving just out of pure love. Where the transaction, which there is nothing wrong with a transaction. Like you said, if both parties are aware (laughs) that this is a transaction, then that's great. I go, but a lot of times we're doing transactions and only one party is aware that it's a transaction. Or or consenting. You know, it might, both yes, parties might exactly. be aware, but there's a power dynamic in play and somebody hasn't had a chance to, you know, fully consent to the transaction. Exactly. Exactly. So I just thought that was a great example in the book. I really enjoyed that one too. So thanks, Lisa, for bringing that up. Um, I just, uh, you know, before we close off, I really wanted to say thank you, Chuck, because you probably don't realize this, Um I think I told Lisa, I don't think I told Brian, but I was in a really low place before I read your book, like really down and was, and was just kind of, uh, just like one of those days where I was just crying a lot for God knows what. And, um, I blame it on the planets and the stars. Yeah. I'm going to blame it on the the planetary alignment as well. Way to own it. Um, the magic sky DJ was not playing the right music. He was not no. playing the right music. I was not, I was not dancing to that. So, um, yeah. and then like, I just kind of said, I, I was speaking out to, to creator Corey, whoever you want to call <laughs> it. And I just said, please, like, I just need help today. Like I can't keep doing this. I, I don't want to go on like this anymore. I just need help today. And then within a few minutes I had noticed your book cause I'd been meaning to read it. And I'm like, Oh, just what else are you doing today? That's great. Like just read the book already. (laughs) And within (laughs) 
within the first couple pages of reading your book, I was had literally already laughed out loud a couple times. You had brought a smile to my face several times. And it just, it really helped take me out of the funk that I was in very unexpectedly and very pleasant. I was very pleasantly surprised. So um, to all of our audience members, I definitely think it's a great book and would highly suggest it to all of you it's for nothing else it's very entertaining and it'll make you laugh and laughing is a really good frequency it's um it's a great frequency to be in especially when you want when you want to manifest stuff and also if there's anyone in your life who's kind of looking for some meaning in their life but they're more of like that kind of dude energy and they just don't want to get too serious about it but this is i think a great book for that kind of person um especially like as an icebreaker uh, but also to anyone who's well-versed on this path, it's still nice and it's refreshing and it's a great read. And I think the humor is, I personally thought you were funny. So I totally am on board with your humor. <laughs> I very much appreciate uh, those kind words. I, I feel blessed that um, to hear that you had that experience, that the book was helpful to you in that way. It's, um, you know, it's, it's what you hope for when you create something, you know, that it will move other people the way you know just as you had some movement in creating it um and that's what helps us feel connected and so gratifying to hear that uh, from you guys thank you so much so where can our audience members get your book they can get it on amazon um so you can search by author onslow pennypacker or you can just search the title agnostic guide um i think you can just use agnostic guide and it should get there but agnostic guide to spiritual growth and shit if you feel like typing the whole thing um it's got an orange cover and uh hopefully you'll find it and love it uh we'll leave the link for it i'll leave the link um to the uh, amazon page in the description in the show notes for everyone so you don't have to search for it unless you already have and um Thanks so much, Chuck, for being on the show. And yeah, everyone, if you're looking for the author, you won't find it under, under Chuck Onslow. So don't <laughs> look for that name. Yeah. Um, so uh, thanks again for being on. It was great to have you on here. And uh, we wish you all the success with your book and your journey. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Chuck. To all of our listeners, thanks for being on. We will be back again with you next week. And uh, if you have any questions for us that you'd like us to ask on the podcast, please send them into our email, info at enlightenup.us. And uh, if you also have topic ideas or guests that you'd like us to bring on the show, you can send that into our email as well. Because we're always wanting to give you guys what you want to hear. So thanks, everyone. And we will be back with you again next week.